0: Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 21, verses five to 38. It's a bit of a lengthy text today, but it is all very much connected. So let me encourage you to direct your hearts to God's word with his help. Let's give our attention to the reading of his word. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse five. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Now let's bow our hearts and ask his help before we examine it together. Father in heaven, you are the one before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. We pray that you would use the time ahead to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit, that we might love you more, that we might magnify your name with our lives. It's through Jesus Christ that we pray, amen. Twice already, we have seen the Lord Jesus lament over Jerusalem. He grieved over their unwillingness to be gathered up as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He wept over their ignorance of the things that make for peace. You remember how he He grieved over the fact that they did not know the time of their visitation. And he grieved over what that meant for them in terms of the judgment that was to come. Well, now we come to chapter 21 where Jesus begins to spell out in much further detail what exactly awaits the holy city. He describes, in fact, with amazing precision the destiny that awaits them. And at the same time, even as we look at those events, he begins to broaden the horizon. And he shows that what you see in the fate of Jerusalem functions as a kind of preview of something much larger in scale. This is what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's a very important discourse Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, where he deals with two distinct yet closely related events, the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's second coming. His teaching on the two are very much closely intertwined. The distinguishing marks of each of them are related and yet they're distinct events what you have in the destruction of the temple and the the city of Jerusalem is a shadow of the end of all things. This is in large part what causes so much confusion and consternation and debate over this passage, a failure to see what Jesus is doing here that really he's doing two things at once. In the near view, he is addressing his immediate audience in in Jerusalem, in first century Jerusalem. And he is warning them. He's preparing them for things that are going to happen in their lifetime. But that is not all. There's more going on here as well. There's also the far view, the judgment and the destruction that will be brought, not just on Jerusalem, but on the whole world at the return of Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem is a small scale model that anticipates the end. And Christ's teachings on both of these two events are interwoven and at times they are overlapping. So you really have to follow along closely as you walk through this passage. The teaching, as you see here, is prompted by the disciples' admiration of the temple. In the year 19 BC, Herod the Great began this massive reconstruction project on the second temple that wound up lasting for more than 80 years, leading almost right up until the temple's destruction. But eventually this reconstruction project Uh, almost doubled the temple and its precincts in size. It was an incredible undertaking. Uh, It included gold plating its facade. Um, It included massive white marble stone throughout. Uh, Luke mentions this when he talks here about noble stones. Some of those stones are still remaining today. Uh, One of them, just to give you an example, is something like 67 feet long, 18 feet wide, uh, 12 feet in height. It's estimated to weigh more than 500 tons. So when Jesus interjects and he says, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down That was no little thing to say. It would have been shocking. It would have been probably preposterous sounding if you weren't a follower of Jesus, if you weren't someone that that took him at his word. But you see that there are those who do, who trust him because they immediately respond and they ask, believing what he says, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? How can we know when these things are about to happen? Well, Jesus answers their, their question in three different stages throughout the course of this discourse. First, he outlines what does not signal the end, the end of all things. What does not signal the end? Second, he tells them what will precede the temple's destruction. And then third, he prophesies about what will come immediately before his return and the judgment of the world. So first, what does not signal the end, meaning the end of all things? Uh, Christ has spoken of this judgment that is going to come on Jerusalem, uh, which the, the disciples understandably want to know about. They want to know when this is going to happen, what kind of signs they can look for that will signal uh, the, the arrival, the, the, the destruction of the, the temple's impending arrival. Uh, but Jesus does something interesting here. He, he temporarily sidesteps that question to consider something that is apparently a far greater concern, that in their eagerness to, to look for signs that they not be swept away by false signs and by false teaching and teachers. He says, see that you are not led astray. Why? For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So Jesus says, there's going to be lots of imposters who come along in my name. Essentially, they have a twofold message. They say, I am he. They claim to be the Messiah. So they come in Christ's name and they, they conduct their ministries in a way that seems to comport with the ministry of the true Messiah. The context of their purported ministry exists, you might say, within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. When they arrive, when they show up on the scene, They're not necessarily marked by inventing new doctrine. They don't necessarily try to suggest that the Messiah isn't coming. They just claim to be him. In that sense, they're right at home in the Christian faith. And second, they carry this message saying the time is at hand. Well, that too smacks of Christ's own message, Uh, Jesus went around saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the kind of men Jesus is warning about here seem to point to things that Christians need to be thinking about. The second coming of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom and so on. In other words, they are not going around saying wild, off the wall kinds of things. And yet nevertheless, they're imposters. They're charlatans. They are masters of disguise, which highlights this need for discernment. Now, I hope that's prompting the question in your mind, if they're so difficult to spot, how can we discern them? How can we not be led astray as Jesus warns them? What will help us discern between false teaching and that which is true? Verse nine, and when you hear of wars and tumults, Do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. There you have it. Now, first you see how Jesus very clearly, very explicitly denies any suggestion that his return will happen immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, there are parallels There are points of connection between the two. There are uh, very important commonalities between what you see happening in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the second coming of Christ, but they're not the same thing. And Jesus wants his disciples to be sure not to get confused over this. Don't confuse the two. Do not conflate the two. You're going to hear of wars and tumults, all manner of things, but the end will not be at once. Now, I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how often is this word in some way violated or denied by preachers today? How often do you see men who, who look at newspapers and they read the headlines and they speak of wars and rumors of wars and famine and plagues and pestilence and natural disasters and immediately get to fear-mongering and prognosticating about the end? Precisely what Jesus says, we do not have grounds to do. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, all these are but the beginnings. Of birth pains. He says that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's still more work to be done. But we must be very careful that we not take a particular text and read it without looking at its context we're going to see a little bit later on toward the end of this passage that the end will be absolutely unmistakable. No one will be standing around debating whether the time has come when Jesus is about to return. Now, in the midst of these calamitous things Christ speaks of, and again, we'll see this repeatedly as we make our way through this text, Jesus provides comfort, assurance, and encouragement to his people. Jesus wants us to know not just that these things are going to happen, but how to think about them, how to respond, how to be prepared. He wants to provide consolation for our hearts, hope that we can cling to as the Lord brings his purposes to pass. So as we look at Christ's teaching, I want to just highlight five points of encouragement the people of God can hold on to in every generation. First of all, God's decree means no reason to fear. God's decree means no reason to fear. How does Jesus direct the hearts of his disciples? When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place." Now, some of you may be asking yourselves, why is this a word of comfort? Why is the fact that these things have to happen a reason not to be scared? Well, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, who is saying this? Who is it that is uttering these words? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's only begotten son and his divine mouthpiece, the son of the father who does all things well. And what I mean by that is this, when Jesus says all these things, and then he talks about the worst catastrophes, the most cataclysmic events that you can imagine in human history, nation, rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, various places, famines and pestilences, terrors, great signs from heaven. All these things come to pass under the mighty superintendence of the hand of God. They all come to pass according to his will and his redemptive purposes. The one who declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Do you ever watch the news or pull up the headlines on your phone and you see what's going on around the world and you immediately find yourself growing fearful? This is what you need to call to mind. There is a sovereign, divine Decree which governs and controls that which, to, to the to the to the eye of the human observer, may look like a world run amuck, but that isn't the case. That is not the case. God sits on His throne. He does all things well. He's bringing all of His purposes to pass, and that. Must, that divine must, all these things must take place means no reason to fear for God's people. Now, we see what will precede the temple's destruction in verses 12 to 17. This is really where Jesus begins to answer directly the disciples question from back in verse seven, what or when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He gives them this brief survey of things that will mark uh, the time leading up to the end. And then Jesus says to his disciples, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, how should the disciples think about a proposition like that? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Is that how we're inclined to think of scary circumstances? This is the second note of encouragement what we might well regard to be the last thing we'd ever want to face, Jesus sees as a blessed gospel opportunity. This will not be a time to panic or to fear, but to bear witness for the sake of Christ. The hour of their distress will be the very thing that provides this window of opportunity to declare the good news of Jesus Christ which is exactly what we see throughout the whole book of Acts. Peter and John, they find themselves standing before the council. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Acts 5 the apostles are thrown into prison. The high priest comes around. He says, we told you, we told you, don't teach in the name of Jesus. And here you are, you fill Jerusalem with this teaching, Peter and the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And we can multiply examples many times over if we had the time today. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, brothers and sisters, this is obviously a specific word of prophecy given to a specific group of disciples who are going to be delivered up to synagogues, who are going to be hauled in before kings and magistrates in the first century. God has not specifically declared that those things will happen to us. They were given to a particular audience, but is there an application that we can draw and apply to our own setting and our context? I submit that there is. Christ portrays throughout this passage, not just the early church, but all of his people in every generation straight through to the end of the ages as those who dwell in a world that utterly opposes the Lord Jesus Christ and that despise those who would follow after him. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends hated by all for my name's sake. That's a message that accords with the whole of Christ's teaching to anyone, anyone that would come after him. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Dear ones, we live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. It's hostile to those that follow the Lord Jesus, that ridicules and derides those that love him. In many places of the world, still to this day, let us be reminded today that includes persecution to the point of death. How should we and others who are facing whatever kind of hostility and persecution and revilement think it's the same. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Allow the words of your savior to, to reframe the way you think about circumstances you wouldn't choose for yourself. You find yourself on the receiving end of hatred. You find yourself on the, the receiving end of uh, the animosity of those who uh, used to be your closest friends, uh, those who are members of your natural family, here's your chance to glorify the Savior who gave his life for you. His exaltation, not our comfort, is what's in view. Now, third. We see the promise of provision. Look at verse 14, if you will. I love the way Jesus puts it here. He tells his disciples, settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Settle it in your minds not to meditate. Isn't that good? Resolve it within yourselves. Consciously determine not to turn things over and over in your head about how you're going to answer. Don't sit there mulling things over. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't wring your hands over what you're going to say. Why? I will give you a mouth and wisdom. See, when the Lord gives us gospel opportunities, our confidence isn't in having all of the right answers or in even being able to expose every logical fallacy or in eloquent speech, but the power of the Holy Spirit filling our mouths, giving us the ability not just to speak, but to speak with wisdom. In other words, to speak effectively, fruitfully, in a way that confounds those that persecute the church of Christ. You remember how the Lord calls Moses to himself and Moses protests. He says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, did God tell Moses not to worry to just take some time and go hit the books? that he would put him through a rhetoric course and eventually he'd get there? No. In fact, he rebuked Moses. He said, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. How many of you find yourself with relationships in your lives where you, if you were honest with yourself, you find yourself fearful about what to say, that you won't have the right answer. God says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. This comes from God, not from man. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This has nothing to do with, with our preparedness. It has nothing to do with the need to study. It has to do with where our confidence is. It has to do with where our trust lies. That it isn't, it isn't in clever turns of phrase. It isn't in having all of the right answers. It's in God. It's in the one who delights to magnify himself through human weakness men and women and children like us here today. Skilled orators are not what saves. It's the preaching of Christ crucified that saves men's souls. And so Jesus exhorts his servants not to fret, but to trust themselves to God's provision and his care, even in their most desperate hour. In verse 16, we come to one of the most glorious paradoxes of the Christian life. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. You see it. Jesus makes no bones about the fact that martyrdom Is a real possibility for the believer. Some of you they will put to death. But then comes the great adversative. But not a hair of your head will perish. Now, how, pray tell, do we make sense of that? Luke chapter twelve and verse four. I tell you, my friends. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Amen? This is number four, the promise of preservation. The Christian may perhaps face death, but he will never face final destruction. This is a truth that that has sustained the people of God Through every generation, particularly those who've sat in chains, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, Hebrews 11 and verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They, they refuse to countenance the idea of renouncing the Lord Jesus Christ in order to gain temporary life in this world when they could die and rise again to life eternal, never to die again. That's our hope. The one who is united to Christ by faith may indeed face suffering and persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face Persecution, our troubles in this life may go so far as to mean physical death at the hands of the enemies of our King. But in this, we trust Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The strange and glorious blessed hope of the Christian life. That brings us to our fifth word of comfort and assurance, the hope of persevering faith. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Beloved, it is not by rising above tribulation or escaping persecution, or avoiding trouble and affliction altogether, but by passing through what God in his infinite wisdom has ordained for us, enduring by God's grace that we gain our lives. Now, we would do well to ask ourselves here what is meant by the word endurance. I wanna read for you a few passages of scripture that speak to this idea. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses three and four. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness. That's our word and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul rejoices in how in the midst of their troubles, their faith in Christ remains steadfast. It continues to endure. 1 Thessalonians talks about the church's steadfastness of hope in Christ. Same idea. Again, Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see the setting there. The setting is one of suffering. That's the context. Now, what does that mean? Produce as we continue to trust in the Lord. It produces endurance. Your faith grows stronger, doesn't it? What does suffering do? It drives you to the Lord, it exhausts whatever storehouses you think you have within yourself, and it, it drives you to the sufficiency of God's grace. It causes you to cling to him. Endurance, that produces character. Our hearts are shaped so that hope in Christ continues to blossom and to flourish. So looking at these passages, we see that when we talk about the kind of endurance Jesus is talking about here, we're not talking about an inner capacity or strength to bear up ourselves under pressure some kind of powerful fortitude that comes from within, but a faith that clings to Christ in the midst of trouble and that clings to him to the end. That's what saving faith is. It's one that holds fast to the Savior all the way to the end. That, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus talks about when he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. We're not talking about even how strong our faith is, our faith may be very dim, very small, but praise God, it is not the strength of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that saves our souls. Verse 20 brings us to the actual destruction of Jerusalem in, in a way that parallels the Old Testament, summons to flee from pagan nations. You think of Egypt or Babylon, God's people now are called to flee. Only this time it's, it's the holy city, Jerusalem, that they're called to flee from, to come out from. Jesus describes this as days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Probably this has in view passages like 1 Kings chapter nine and verse six. God warned his people many times, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among, the, among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done, this, done thus to this land and, and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold onto other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. How will this come to pass against Jerusalem in AD 70? The Lord uses Gentiles as his instruments of judgment, much like they were often used In the Old Testament, Jerusalem, he says, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Only this time, there's something very different than what you see occurring throughout this this pattern in the Old Testament. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled So there is this new era of gospel proclamation that has opened up. Kingdom expansion among every nation and tongue and tribe of the earth. That's what we're living in today. We are evidence of God's gracious work during the times of the Gentiles. Now, at last we come to what will signal the end, in verses 25 to 28, just prior to the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus talks about signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What I want you to see here is, is the great contrast Jesus paints between those who belong to the kingdom of the world and those who belong to the kingdom of God. How do those who belong to the world respond as Jesus prepares to return? People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. It strikes dread in the heart's of those belonging to the kingdom of this world. And rightly so, rightly so. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. He will come in his glory and all his angels with him and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But how do God's people respond to that same sight? Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. While others hide their faces in fear, God's people lift up their heads. The the same thing that spells dread for some is reason for consummate delight. In the hearts of others. Now, dear ones, with this teaching laid out, Jesus goes on to issue a charge for watchfulness. And he uses this very brief parable of a, of a fig tree. He says that in the same way that when you see a fig tree budding out, you know that summer's on its way. When you see these signs he's described, the kingdom of God is near. The upshot being watch, watch for the signs of the times. But then he offers a qualification. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now you may be aware that in a passage, which is at times hotly disputed, this particular phrase is, more hotly disputed than maybe any other phrase in the entire Bible, this generation. For your sake and mine, I am not going to sit this afternoon and sketch out the 10 or so different views of this particular word. Just briefly though, some see this as referring to the generation of people living at the time Jesus spoke these words that would mean everything discussed in this passage would be witnessed by the generation of the apostles. Obviously, not only would this make Jesus wrong, because all this has not taken place, every eye has not seen him, he is yet to return, but it causes one to wonder why the early Christians felt no need to excise this verse From the Bible. Why go on proclaiming something like this, unless, of course, the early church understood it to have a different sense? It would also contradict Jesus' promise that the end will not be all at once. A better view is to see the words this generation as a way of speaking in representative terms of everyone characterized by the kind of hostility and hatred toward the son of man, the kingdom of God, and those in it living at all times. People of the same kind, in other words. And in fact, prior to this passage, this phrase is used eight times in Luke's gospel, always carrying this negative sense something that is akin to how the Lord often speaks in the Old Testament of this people talking about wayward Israel in a way that uh, seems to almost uh, be intended to distance the Lord from his, his, his wayward people. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Luke chapter 11 and verse 29 Jesus says this generation is an evil generation. Paul uses the same word in in uh, Philippians chapter 2 in a similar sense he talks about how God's people should live carefully in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And he's not talking there about a span of 40 years, but about a kind of people who are marked by certain characteristics. Back in Luke chapter 11 and verse 49, Jesus talks about how the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, in that immediate context, Jesus Jesus is indicting the Jewish leaders who along with their forefathers rejected all of Yahweh's servants but it's clear there in Jesus's words that when he speaks of this generation, he reigns in not only Jesus' Jesus's contemporaries, the ones that he's speaking to in that context, but everyone who is party with them, going all the way back to Cain, who killed his brother Abel. One author says the phrase has a pejorative sense describing unbelieving, rejecting humanity, unresponsive to God, and oblivious to the possibility of facing his judgment, a Jesus-hating, kingdom-opposing brood of people. What then is Jesus getting at in verse 32? This generation will not pass away until all has, t- has taken place. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ should expect affliction and persecution at the hands of the enemies of Christ until the very end, right up until his return. And yet we have this hope that stands as this wonderful contrast. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, when the created order as we know it will pass away, but the words of Jesus Christ will not pass away. They will stand forever. Now, a final word of warning. Many things must take place, as we've seen, before the end comes, but therein lies a danger a danger that we not remain vigilant in our watchfulness for Christ's return. So Jesus says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He identifies for us two primary sources of danger as we wait upon the day of his return. And the first is simply the issue of sin. He says, there's a danger of growing lax, in your relationship to sin. You begin to think to yourself, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so what happens? Your spiritual vigilance begins to wane You begin to lapse into debauchery and into drunkenness, into sensuality, into licentiousness. You follow after your own sinful desires. What does that do? It sends you into this spiritual stupor. That's the idea behind weighing down the heart. You become spiritually sleepy. So you have sinfulness on the one hand, and on the other there's this concern of being overburdened by the cares of this life. You're simply overwhelmed with the stuff of this world. You have anxious cares, lesser concerns, things that may have some value, they may require some measure of attention, but they have the potential to crowd out the knowledge of God and things of an eternal nature, those things which are above. And church, this is no less of a trap than are the lusts of the flesh. It is no less of a danger. The cares of this life may seem more benign, less hazardous than something like dissipation and drunkenness, but they pose no less of a threat. You don't have to be an alcoholic or overcome with gross immorality to absent yourself from the kingdom of God. It can happen by way, Jesus says, of everyday run-of-the-mill cares. And so, dear ones, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans 13 verses 11 and 12. That day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. You see how Jesus belabors the universal impact the return of Christ will have on all of humanity. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Don't be deceived into thinking that you will somehow escape it or that you will be an exception to the judgment that he will bring. Rather, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You have pressures without. You have a sin nature within to contend with. You have troubles and afflictions and persecutions and the cares of this life. So what do you do? Remain constant in prayer. Seek the face of God. Depend on his strength. That is how you endure. That's how you endure to the end by looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you this day and we, have th- we thank you together that you have given us a way that we might stand before the Son of Man by receiving his imputed righteousness. God, we thank you for the blessed hope of the gospel. God, we thank you for the good news that the just shall live by faith. That's our only hope. That's our only confidence. God, we know that if it weren't for Christ's sacrifice, we'd have no, no hope of standing before his glorious face when he comes to judge the world in righteousness. God, thank you for this warning. Thank you, God, for how we can look back at the, even the ruins of Jerusalem still to this day and be reminded of the assuredness of your word that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. God, may we stay awake. Would you help us to be sober and alert? May we so love you and live for you that we can look with great anticipation to that day when he comes on the clouds and we can straighten up and raise up our heads because our redemption's drawing nigh. Until then, Lord, we pray that you would magnify yourself through us